one of the things I've been praying about over this is that the Lord's hand would show up in our conversation tonight, and I want it to be a conversation. My original plan for this night was to be super clinical and just try to, like, hand out information. Um, I, as I've sat with this information and the weight of this information, I cannot do that because every time I try to be super clinical, it's just really not me. And I mean, I'm pretty clinical, but that's all in the back working, right? And I want to be able to love people well in this. And so I wanted to start by kind of opening up the conversations as to why we even saw this as a topic. So those of you who don't know, we have like a section of ministry directors who are called the discipleship ministry directors. Um, and we meet every now and then, at least twice a year, but sometimes more. Um, to kind of talk about how women's, men's, counseling, connections, like all these things that really care for people's hearts can intersect and make sure we're doing a good job of overlapping and caring for people. So when I came up with this topic, I was like, I don't know if this is going to be interesting to people. Let's see. And I brought it to them, and they were like, absolutely. This is something that we need to be talking about. And so here's my personal heart on this. My personal heart is... Um, I want to love everyone at Village Church really well, and that includes our children, and that includes loving parents to love their children well. And so when we look at mental health diagnoses, um, a lot of times it can be a weird, daunting subject. For me, it's not, right, because this is like my everyday life thinking, but I know that for many it's, it is. And so my hope in even just beginning to talk about this tonight is that the Village Church culture, we could, we could step into our culture and we can make atten- intentional strides to be able to say, okay, we want all of these things and more, because secretly we're going to talk about seven, um, to be things that we're talking about and everything else that we're not going to talk about, right? Because it's okay, because There is freedom in understanding the way that God has created all of our kids to be and the way that sometimes sin has affected them with different wirings and rewirings and different genetic tendencies and different whatever may be that comes behind these things. And every opportunity that we have to speak the light of Jesus into someone's life um, is a beautiful opportunity. And so my hope is even from these conversations um, that we're going to have tonight and we're actually going to split this and carry it over into the first week in December because I just think it's so important and I want to not rush through it. Um, is an opportunity for us to be creating a culture where we can be able to look at one another, have concern for each other's kids, not be going around diagnosing other people's kids, right? Um, because I had to go to school for lots of years to be able to do that, and it wouldn't be fair if you got to do that too. Um, but, but we can say to other people, just kidding, kind of, um, no, but that you can say to other people, like, when I watch that, like, I have a concern. Or have you ever noticed that when you talk to your child, they always look at the ground to the right side? Or whatever it is, these things, right? These, like, things that we're seeing that we cannot be, like, labeling our children for the sake of labeling. But one of the things that I really believe with all my heart is that when we can diagnose, when we can bring someone into a structure well, it is actually, there's freedom there. Um, and so I think in our culture in general and our understanding that probably a lot of us grew up with, with mental health diagnoses, which we're going to cover into learning disorders next time we meet together. Um, it was a, like a label and leave them kind of like thing, like, well, that person's depressed, so sucks to be you, right? It was just like a label and then we left you that defined you. It, it, it was, you know, a thing that you grew with or grew with you and you didn't really grow out of it. 
And I think one of the things I just so passionately desire for people to understand, especially when it comes to this elementary kid age, is that the hope for early intervention and everything we're going to be talking about is like gigantic. I can, any of the things that we're going to be talking about, they may not go away completely, but they are so malleable when their little minds and hearts are young. It's unbelievable. And so if we can cut the denial, cut the fear, cut the pride down, right, to be able to look at our kids when they're little, watch them, invite the community to watch them and to love them through that process, we have every opportunity to intervene in a way that is going to make significant changes. And so most of you know this comes a lot from even our personal experience with both of our oldest girls. And so, well, they're only girls also, um, oldest children. And so when Elliot was little, I was like, oh my gosh, every time I change your clothes, the world ends. Um, she was deathly scared of like whipped cream, like all these strange things. You're like, is this, but when it's your first too, you're like, is this normal? And you begin to like look at all these different things. And it wasn't until I had a second child that that confirmed that a lot of those things were not normal. And so that's been a process that's been very different for her and, and what that looks like. And then when Avia was born, for those of you who don't know, um, she had a two vessel, two vessel umbilical cord. And so, which is an indicator of a lot of lifelong, um, get emotional every time I talk about it. a lot of lifelong things to follow you with you. So she had a lot of complications when she was born. She had a lot of complications in utero. She has like overcome so many of those. Um, but it, it absolutely set my guard reading all this information of like, so they can be prone to this, 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 this learning disorder, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, to be able to be like, all right, I want to be watchful, not paranoid, not nervous, not fearful, but watchful of the correlation between this and these things that can continue to really go really into like young adulthood. Um, some of those are like major organ problems, but a lot of them are um, the way your brain works because uh, you are only getting one tube of food and oxygen to the baby as it's being developed instead of the two that you're supposed to have. And so for those of you who might know also, so like when she was little, she just started, she did so many things that were strange and I'd be like, what? Like every time she'd draw a picture, it'd be from the bottom of the picture to the top of the picture. Every time, super skinny, all of her letters, bottom of the picture, to the top of the page. I'd be like, write an E, right? And I'd write it this big, and she'd be like, E. And I was, no. And then there'd be 100 million lines. And just this whole co combination of reading just began to be like, what is even happening? And I feel like I can explain things pretty well. <laughs> I cannot explain to her why an E can only be this big. Like, every, like, what the difference is? She saw no difference, whatever. So very early on, obviously, I was also watching, right? I began to see, and so... We intervened in her life in a radical way. That girl was in physical therapy, occupational therapy, like two to six times a week from the time that she was about mm, four or five months old. She had no ab muscles. She had no peripheral vision. She had no um, reflex to put her arms out when she fell. Anyone at church, would, like her Easter dress one year was like lavender. It matched all the concussions on her head. Like cause she had, um, she just, that stupid little half wall. I was about to take a sledgehammer to it. You know, like where you put the coats and it has that little wall that sticks out. And there's like 10 feet of hallway. Well, she has like two concussions literally from like walking into that little part of the wall that sticks out because door frames, things like that. Any peripheral vision you you don't have, right? So you just, you just walk into the walls all the time. Um, and one of the things that has just been a great display of the glory of God and early intervention in her life, and just the value of that, is that um, when I had her parent-teacher conferences two weeks ago, she's at grade level in every single solitary thing, and her reading level is at grade level. And, like, they projected that would happen around junior high. 
And so she's had so many, but honestly, and her teacher told me, she's like, Brianna, you need to understand that her work level, her work ethic is one of the most beautiful, hardworking work ethics I've ever seen. That when this girl gets an assignment, she takes it seriously and she just, she's like, this is, like, you cannot create this if it wasn't created in a fire. And so um, I've just been blown away at the way that the Lord has worked in her life and the way he has. Like, she's very compassionate. She has eyes that see the hurt in other people because of, I think <laughs> she did tell me one time, like, I've had a very hard life. And I was like, well, <laughs> not really. Kind of, yes, but your experience has been pretty awesome, actually, because going to physical therapy for you is like swinging on swings, right? And like, you never know that you're doing an ab workout. I know every time I'm doing an ab workout. Um, and so, um, and uh, the ones we're going to talk about, right? So she still has like a bunch of tendencies of a bunch of these different things that we're talking about. And I'll throw in some of the stories because it's been very entertaining to parents in some ways. Um, but But that's my hope. My hope is that we can be a place where the light is always welcomed, where things are not hidden in the darkness. When sometimes, because I feel like a lot of times my children, I've had like, well, that's strange and that's strange and that's strange. I don't see how those go together, right? But like, oftentimes when I put them on paper, I'm like, oh, that looks a lot like the diagnostic criteria for X, Y, and Z, right? <laughs> like, because I, I just, you live with your kids and you kind of tuck this information in little different parts of your brain. And so I think it's our opportunity to be intentional about our kids. But this is just not about our kids. This is about loving basically every child that you have in your life well, right? And every parent who's loving a, a child well. And so, um, yes. So just to be clear, a lot of what we're talking about tonight, these are not... You know, when you have strep throat, the doctor looks at you and they're like, oh, looks like strep throat. Let's do a throat culture, right? And then we run it through the 24-hour one, which sometimes that can come back, right? Like, not positive when it is. And then you run the longer-term one, which I can't remember. It's three days or whatever it is. So that is, like, um, clinically diagnosed and laboratorily supported, right? A lot of the things that we're talking through are just clinically diagnosed, there are different tests and measures that we use um, that have been scientifically put together, but they are not like a strep test culture that we get to run through a machine and gets to come back positive or negative. And so when we're clinically diagnosing anything, whether we're a doctor diagnosing strep throat or someone who's looking at a child with anxiety, it's kind of a, it's a longer process to be able to look at what this looks like and see. And so as parents, some of the best thing we can do is when we see something that's like, well, that's a little unhealthy or awkward or strange or whatever, we just begin to kind of like take note, right? We share it with people. I'm pl I don't know what this is, but like they hide their water bottles by color under their bed when they're actually garbage, whatever it is. Like, you know, you begin to like look at that. Um, so, and the other thing too, that's a huge heart of mine is that when we get to like the learning disorders and different things like that, when we have our children um, understood early, not only does early intervention help them, but it really sets them up for success in school later. Um, so just to know, so we know clinically versus laboratorily, we have lots of tests that we run, more like surveys and like written tests. Um, we can look at the brain and different things in the way that works, but most of this is all clinical diagnosis. The other thing I wanted to say is that the way we diagnose something, this is huge, right, for anything, super important, like see this in your brains, is that is the way that it is um, interfering with our daily life and also the fact that it's inconsistent with the developmental level. So if we have a two-year-old who's screaming and kicking when they don't get their way, or we have a 
14-year-old who's screaming, you're like, we're like, oh, well, two-year-old, you can get a pass on that because that's just you learning how to be in the world, right? Um, 14-year-old, like, we should have a little bit more tact in the way we're doing that. So inconsistent with the developmental level, and also it's interfering. It's not just something that's kind of a thing, and then they get over it, and we move on. It's a thing where it's like, it's a thing, and it stops our family. It stops their production. It stops, it kind of stops everything. So that interference is the huge way that we go from looking at it as like a trait or a tendency to this is actually something that's like diagnosable. Does that make sense? So we could diagnose everyone's room with one thing or the other, or like look at what it is and the traits and tendencies that we had. So like my practicum at Will Creek, my exiting interview was to diagnose my boss. That was awesome. Um, and to be able to be like, yes, this is diagnosable or this is just traits and tendencies that you have. <laughs> Awkward central. And he was a very like, I mean, in some ways, easily diagnosable. And, um, and it was just the most awkward thing ever. So all of us have traits and tendencies towards all sorts of things. The reason it becomes a diagnosis is because interference, right? It interferes. It stops life from actually being able to continue to happen. Um, one of the things I just want you to be thinking about, so when we're looking at our kids and when we're thinking about these things, is... Um, this statement that I hear a lot from parents that, honestly, it triggers me absolutely 100%. It's like, oh, that's just Scott. Okay, so that statement, if you find yourself saying that more than, like, three times a month, that's, like, a thing. That's a thing for you to be able to be like, oh, I'm, like, personifying them as this, and I'm, like, throwing that in to be like, oh, that's just Scott. Oh, that's just Scott. Right, I'm excusing him to other people or her, and I'm... I'm saying that, that's just like one thing I always see like, oh no, there's something more there. Um, and so everything that we're gonna be talking about, I'm just gonna kinda give like the conclusion right now and then we're gonna get into the middle, which is a weird way of doing a talk, um, is the three areas that if you have concerns about any of your kids in any of these areas, obviously you're always welcome to come and talk to me. Um, I will not usually at all be the end all be all, but I'm pretty good like, hey, well let's go talk to this person and this person's really good at that. I'm a good resource person. Um, or to be able to say, like, yeah, you're onto something. You're like, no, I think that's just completely developmentally appropriate. Like, so let's just watch it or whatever it may be. But to be able to go to your pediatrician, I'll, I would love to say that pediatricians are really good at this. My actual experience is that they're not. Um, but they're a good starting point. And sometimes I, I really encourage parents to be able to be like, you know what? Well, I'm uncomfortable with what I see going on. So I ne you need to connect me with the next step resource. As a parent, that is your absolute responsibility. And it's completely fine for you to go to the next step resource. Um, and th those next step resources, most of the time, are going to be OT if they're under six or, you know, even above that. But an OT evaluation, occupational therapy evaluation, is a great place. They handle so many different things that they can like look at and they have the weirdest questions right like uh well when they put food in their mouth do they push their tongue against their teeth ah uh, what like do they sleep with their mouth open like the questions are weird right and then they come up with fabulous understandings of our children or a neuropsych neuropsych usually does not work with a lot of kids under the age of six it's kind of like that five six kindergarten start when they'll start they will sometimes work with kids younger but it's usually that five six range when they will start working with them so just as like, hey, where do we go to now? What do I encourage people to do? That's what we do. Now we're going to go into it. So the first one we're going to talk about is, does anyone, oh, should anyone guess? Anyone? Number one diagnosis in, oh, close. That's our third. Anxiety. So anxiety disorders. Everyone takes a deep breath. Whew, anxiety disorders. Um, we are actually going to talk about 
I want to give you the categories of the actual categories. I'm not going to shout out the DSM-5 material because you can Google that. It's on Google. You will Google DSM-5 anxiety um, and you'll find all the information. But I want to make it like a living and breathing diagnosis for you, right? Like in, in kids, it's different than it is in adults. And so we're going to go through um, these different categories real quick. This is both educational, like, oh, I didn't know that, and hopefully helpful. So just before we get to this, so the feeling of anxiety, especially in children, is that ner nervousness or being on edge. All of us are not thinking about our children. My children are often on edge. Um, right? So it's like, it's not like the sleep deprived. It's not like hangry edge. It's just the other edge, right? And it's just like on edge. Everything is like, boo, boo, um, And most of the time, it has to do with unfounded or unrealistic fears. They have trouble separating from their parents. Sleep disturbance is a huge, 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 huge part of this. Obsessive thoughts and or compulsive behaviors, trembling, sweating, shortness of breath, here are the big two, stomach aches, chronic stomach ache complaints, and chronic headaches, and or muscle tension um, are all the physical symptoms. And so in children, the somatic experience of both anxiety and the mood disorders we're going to talk about is a huge part of it. Um, our bodies are sending signs that something's wrong, and as you know, we get those checked out by the doctor, and there's nothing wrong. That's when we have to really clue in like what's going on. Um, and so, anxiety in adults and in children, it's like a flag of warning that our body sends up to be able to say like something's not right, something's not right. And so, if we dismiss that in our children, oh, you're fine. Oh, whatever. In some ways, we we need to teach them to look at it and then put it down, right? But we also can't be dismissive of it because then we're not teaching them to honor the God-given system of warning, like the little engine check engine light on your car, right? That's what anxiety is, like something's wrong, I need to look at something. But if we can teach our children to be skilled understandings of their own, understanders of their own heart, like we want ourselves to be, to be able to be like, oh, check engine light is on, hmm, what's going on? Because anxiety, most of the time in adults and in children has to do with a lack of control, right? There's something they're experiencing in their life that they cannot control the way that they want to be able to control it. And so um, for people who don't know Jesus, I do not even know how they deal with anxiety, right? Because it has to all just be like symptom management based um, because they have nothing to be able to surrender this control to and to be able to trust. Why the world is not more of a hot mess anxiety place, I have no clue because it does not make sense to me how you know, you can, you would have to be responsible for controlling everything, in my opinion, right? Because since we know Jesus, we have the ability to be able to take that access of control and place it under his power and his goodness and his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, to be able to give that to him um, and to be able to have that external situation, but then entrust him to that. And so I think for a lot of kids, Anxiety is an opportunity for us to parent them through it, to be able to teach them what it's like to live in the world where we're not in control of everything, but God is, and we have a light that shines inside of our hearts that tries to affect this. Um, I would say that anxiety is absolutely the number one growing cultural health diagnosis for children. If you think about it, we could probably think about why, right? Like all these things that are out of the control, things that go on in the media, exposure to media, things that go on at school, bullying. Like there's just so many things in their world that are huge to them, right? Um, which is super important in our parenting. Mike always says like, um, he watched Elliot lose a balloon when she was little and she just melted and cried, you know, whatever. And he was like, you know, it, to me, it's like my wallet just floated up into the sky and was never going to return, you know? Like, that was her whole world at that moment was that balloon, right? And so it's important for us on the anxiety spectrum to be empathizing with our children appropriate for what this experience is like for them. 
Because sometimes, <laughs> I think, I don't, Michael just said this in a sermon or whatever, and um, one of our children has chronically had nightmares, and for a long time she would not tell us what they were about. And I was so terrified. Like, what have you seen? Like, what is, oh, it's so scary. She was asleep, you know, night terror, everything. It was terrible. And she, for like two nights she wouldn't tell me what the substance of this was because I was, she, she's like, you'll be so mad at me that I even saw, like, she on and on and on and on. And it was like an orange skeleton carrying a bucket. And I was like, were they hurting anyone? Were they, you know, like, I'm like, she's like, no, that's all, right? That's all. But that was enough for her. And I was like, praise God, but that is so terrifying. Thank you. Because I was so, anyways, you know, you're like, I don't know what they see. They see something like whatever going on. And, um, but in her mind, that was so terrifying that that is caused all this sleep disturbance, all this kind of stuff. And so for me to empathize for that and also be thankful, that's what it was, is just like a beautiful place to be able to be. Um, but so it, I, I, I say that anxiety is contagious, obviously not in the form of like Ebola, um, but it is something when your little kids are watching other little kids be anxious, it is hard not to pick up on those behaviors. Probably many of you have had maybe different friends who suffer from anxiety more or the other. And sometimes you're like, oh, I just don't even relate to that, right? And sometimes it could relate to something that you're kind of like, oh, well, yeah. Like, what if? La, 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 la. And everyone, it can kind of like, it can grow. It can be contagious. And so, again, it's not like Ebola, but it is contagious. And so that's even something that I think we have the opportunity to shepherd our children in and how we learn how to be, how to care for people who experience that and, and, and not take it on ourselves, not take that, join them in that feeling. Um, so a couple other physical signs for children of anxiety is they refuse to eat snacks or lunch at daycare or school when they're away from you. They don't like to use the bathrooms except when they're at home especially pooping. That's a big thing. That's a big sign. Um, they can become restless, fidgeting, hyperactive, or distracted. Um, is this not ADHD. This is like a like almost like someone put a little hamster wheel inside of them and it's just always going. Um, and you can tell ADHD, it comes more, okay, this is like super not clinical. Um, it comes, ADHD comes more from like all the appendages going and anxiety is more like in the core of someone just spitting. Um, they can start to shake or sweat when they get in intimidating situations. Um, they constantly have their muscles tensed and everything. As you kind of like look at them, they kind of like tense all up. Um, and usually a big one is uh, having trouble falling asleep and staying asleep. Um, emotional signs of anxiety, crying often, acts extremely sensitive, um, becomes grouchy or angry without a clear reason. Big one. Um, <laughs> I was Let's be honest. I think for my anxiety can kick in, right? That's like one of the biggest things, like that irritability. Why? I don't know. It's just the edge, right? The edge is there and you're on it and you don't like it and you can feel it. And it's an intense situation to be on the edge all the time. You don't know what got you there, but you're there, right? And so it's the same in our children. Like, whoa. Um, is afraid of making even minor mistakes. Um, test anxiety is a big part of this lots of times. Um, panic attacks are a part of elementary age school children's anxiety experience, but they are most often starting when the hormones start to kick in. So between like the fourth and seventh grade levels is when those usually start to increase. They are rarer, rarer in small children. Um, phobias, bees, dogs, um, and exaggerated fears, um, like natural disasters, why my water is so far away. Um, natural disasters, tornadoes, thunderstorms, right? So lots of kids don't like lots of those things, right? But this is the point where it takes over and it's like, what does it make the difference? It interferes. Like we can't go to the park actually because they're afraid of bees. Uh, we can't go outside because it's raining and they think it might storm. Like it's that um, 
intrusion, the imp- like the actual overtaking of life. Worries about things that are far in the future. Like an example, a third grader might worry about starting middle school. And they talk about starting middle school all the time, but like, wait, we got a while to figure that out. Um, frequent nightmares of losing a parent or a loved one. I can, I feel like I can say this now because it didn't happen. But like I, the night before I left for Haiti, I was like, guys, I'm just going to miss you so much. And Avia was like, yeah. So if you die over the ocean, I'm going to be like, oh, mom died. And then they'll try to comfort me. And I'm going to be like, no, I cannot be comforted. Like she should, she like, she like played out the whole death scenario. And I was like, I did not want to hear that, right? Like, I'm leaving you to go an ocean away, which is already, like, really me just stepping out and what God has called me to do, Um, because I can't swim the ocean. I still had to tell myself, like, I could take a boat. Um, And here she is playing out my her whole reaction and response. She's she's given to me for when I die in the ocean. I was very careful in the ocean. and so that was great. That'd be a great example. Um, gets distracted from playing by their worries and fears. Um, like the triggers just are all over the place. And then we're, talk- we're going to talk about obsessive thoughts or behaviors. So that's like finger tapping, hand washing, um, collecting. That's a big one um, at, for young kids. And then the meltdowns and the tantrums go longer than what you're seeing in like other people who are of the same age. Behavioral signs of anxiety. Ask what if constantly. So what if an earthquake happened? What if the storm came? What if the lightning hit her house? Avoids participating during um, circle time or class activities and likes to sit to the side. Remains silent or preoccupied when he's expected to work with others. Refuses to go to school. Stays inside alone. um, Has a hard time connecting with their peers. Is very quick to say I can't do it without a real reason behind it. um, And constantly seeking the approval of parents, teachers, and friends. So that's just a general picture. So now we're going to go into these categories. So generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD is what we can call it sometimes, is just um, this sense of an excessive worry or apprehension about a number of events and activities. This is not like, it just switches. Like, what are we doing today? Oh, it'll go towards that, right? Like, it's not like spiders or whatever it may be. It just, it follows them around with them everywhere in whatever situation they're going to see into that situation, see what could go wrong, and see what could overtake in that situation. These feelings occur almost all the time and are not triggered. I just said that. Um, oh, this is a good sentence. Like what I just said. Rather, the worry seems to float in a more generalized way from one topic to the next. Um, so like fear of failure, poor performance, safety, thunderstorms, wars, whatever it may be. Um, children with generalized anxiety disorder tend to be very hard on themselves because there's definitely a perfectionistic, people-pleasing trait to this that oftentimes follows all this, like, energy that they're taking in. Um, And so um, they are looking for the approval of other people, and they're very, in some ways, emotionally intelligent. All the... All of the generalized anxiety kids that I work with are super emotionally intelligent because they can perceive a room, right? And then they're able to be like, why did that person just make that face? Why did that, that person look sad? Is everything okay? What's going on? And so they, have, they carry that weight of the world in all the situations like on their shoulders, and they take that on them. And so they have to be the burden bearer for that. Um, phobias. Oh, by the way, there are... Um, post-it notes at your table so if as we're going you have questions like literally just write them down they don't have to be awesome ones they can be anything well if we we won't probably have time today but we're going to consider doing like a podcast to follow up with this or we'll answer them in a Facebook group or we will do it um, at the beginning of the next one so but any questions please phobias everyone probably knows what a phobia is highly specific 
and exclusive fear. Um, they don't function normally until confront. They function normally until they're confronted with the dreaded object. Um, and so, honestly, there's no other solution to that except for like exposing them to it and like helping them to understand. But the more and um, so we all probably have things in our life, right, that like we can relate to with that. I think the older I get, the more I'm like. The other thing is, too, I think the older I get, the more I'm like, like eyes. Like when people get eye cuts, I'm like, oh my gosh, don't even, like I didn't, I didn't decide to have that. I don't think about it. I see it and then I'm like, well, and then I'm done and I can't think about it anymore. Dysophobia is they usually try to like, like if anyone knows um, Don Bosworth, she has a very severe spider phobia. It's pretty entertaining, actually. Um, and so just things that are like, you know, they interfere. Like she won't go in her house if there's a spider in there. She'll go sit in her car. Like, you know, like she's done. It's not, it's fine. She'll go to Target. Um, so whatever that looks like. So the phobias, you know, um, they control us. Um, separation anxiety disorder. So obviously this is pretty normal around like seven to 12 months when children are learning object permanence. But um, it is not normal when you're two or three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten. Um, and so this is their excessive worry and apprehension about being away from their parents. They often fear that their parents are going to be harmed in some way and they're not going to return to them as promised. Um, and so when it gets into older children and when stuff, life, life events are getting really stressful, that's when we begin to see it's a big problem. Obsessive compulsive disorder is a condition involving obsessions and compulsions. This is one I feel like a lot of people understand the compulsion part of this, right? Like washing your hands, checking the doorknobs. Um, I had a gentleman in our life that used to have, couldn't leave the house until all of the faucets were like turned, like those teardrop ones, right? Until they were all turned like exactly to the top. A lot of these things, we could all be like, oh, I like to have things that way. Like I like to have things in a certain way. But if you were to leave, did you have to go back in the house just to make sure that the faucet was in the direction that you thought it looked best in? No. Right, and so that's where we get traits and tendencies versus like actual interfering, and so the obsession. So the thing is too, you don't have to have compulsions. You can have intrusive thoughts. So intrusive thoughts can be a part of this, and so that's that's a big thing that I see with kids when you're like, they're like laying in bed. So one of our children really struggled with this when she was younger. To a certain degree, she'd be like, I am. She had. She just. <laughs> It's not funny. Um, that's all the time about swallowing things, right? And so, like, if you couldn't find something, she was always afraid she swallowed it. So, like, strawberry shortcake doll, eight inches big. I think I swallowed it while I was sleeping. <laughs> How is that the logical option? It's not a logical option. She'd have night terrors where she would just be screaming out that she'd swallowed the counter. She, like, three nights in a row, she was just like, I swallowed the counter, I swallowed the counter. And I was like... Like the kitchen counter, I I like I was like I was, I mean the doll is one thing. A counter, this is like a whole new level. But it was actually like those little like ones tens. Finally, when I got the story out, like those little ones and tens counters that you use in the mouth that she had swallowed that because she lost it and rolled under her desk. Um, pennies, all that kind of stuff. And so like these intrusive thoughts that come usually more at nighttime, right? Of like these things you're like, what are we even talking about right now? Um, that just like they come in and they just take over and it's very hard to get them out of their heads. So um, kids are so easily distractible generally. And um, that's what I had to like. So I was like, I can distract you. This is a miracle. Um, just to be able to be like, hey, bird, what? Oh, bird. Now we're all talking about birds. Like that's a blessing. Um, and so instead of this kind of like ruminating. And so I say anxiety is a lot more of you feel it in your chest and it's like that hamster wheel. 
And obsessive compulsive is a lot more um, like a ring inside of your brain, right? Like all the thoughts are just going around and around and around. And anxiety too in your brain when you're having thoughts, it can be more like a bouncy ball, like boom, 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 like from thought to thought to thought to thought to thought, where obsessive compulsive is more like it's on a track and it's just playing again and again and again and again. And so just as a bonus information, anxiety is something that we compete with the truth to be able to stop that bouncy ball, take hold of it, capture that, right? And be able to like present it and be able to be like, no, this is the truth actually. OCD, the more that we speak truth into the situation, it's actually just like adding energy to the wheel that's going around and we're just entertaining it. It's actually such a destructive thought pattern that our whole job is to try to kick it off course and flick it away and be like, no, we're actually not going to think about you. We're going to think about something totally different. And that's big, right? Because in parenting, if we're parenting anxiety like it's OCD or parenting OCD like it's anxiety, we can actually really, you know, ignite the fire instead of trying to, like, put it out. So panic disorder is characterized, um, like I talked a little bit before, discrete and intense periods of anxiety that occur unexpectedly without warning. Many times they happen in the middle of the night when they've just been sleeping. Um, not always linked to a specific place or situation. Um, with panic disorder, there's often no warning. Sometimes there are triggers when that anxiety just like grows to the point where it's overtaking you and your breath is being short and you feel like you're having a heart attack. Um, and the breathing part of this for kids is the scariest. It's scary for adults too, mind you. But like the not being able to breathe, to be taken over by that, that's super scary for kids, not even having that understanding of what's happening. Um, everything is closing in around them and they experience feelings of impending doom. With kids though, I find it happens more and more and more and more and more and more at night. Um, even in the middle of the night. So, like, sometimes those night terrors, sometimes those situations are very similar. Selective mutism. If, I don't know if, anyone, if you have ever known anyone who has selective mutism. I went to second grade with a girl who had selective mutism, and she was my partner for all the group projects. Um, and it was so frustrating. And so that's kids, they can absolutely speak, but they refuse to speak in certain situations where talking is expected or necessary. Um, and so they, like, just withdraw. Basically, they avoid eye contact. They chew or twirl on their hair. They're expressionless. They can stand motionless. And at home, they may be like, la, 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 la. And then they get into these situations. That's why it's called selective, right? And they're like, turning my whole persona off. Um, we had to do a puppet show, and I was like, guess I'll be all of them. Like, it was, <laughs> why is she my partner? I don't know. Um, and so oftentimes parents may not even know that that's going on because they're not in that environment where they've decided to turn it off. And that's something that, you know, is awesome to be able to work together in every environment to be able to see. Um, that's usually around five years old and usually actually goes away before second grade. Um, Post-traumatic stress disorder, again, this is the intense re-experiencing of a traumatic event by distressing recollections, dreams, and associations. One of the things I think that is super important with this is, like I said, with the skeleton carrying the bucket, um, the trauma, right, that you and I would have needed to experience to somehow qualify for this is sometimes very different for what children can qualify. So sometimes it's that car accident. Sometimes it's just hearing about something. Sometimes it's seeing something that's like, um, so like when we were, when, I don't, I think it's, I don't know if I was pregnant with Alex or I just had Alex, and Michael's praying at the Memorial Day Parade. Most many people have heard this story. Um, they had the cannon that goes off, and they had a gun salute. At the, it was like 100 million degrees outside, and then at the gun salute, we were like, that was the first time we ever did it, and we were placed like at this place of honor right by all of the elderly, I wish I knew cool terms for military people, like all the elderly like military people who were carrying the flags. Well, veterans, I could come up with that one, but like they're like they're like an association of something, right? And so they're like the flag bearers, like that's like an important job. 
And so when the fire, when the shot went off, the gentleman right next to us fell forward onto his face and cracked his head open onto Elliot's feet. And he, he was not, he was like completely passed out and there was just blood everywhere. So then loud noise took her until she was probably about, so she was about four, took her till she was about um, seven <laughs> to be able to listen to a firework or to be able to hear a loud noise without that. And then, so right after that, by the way, then they started shooting off the cannons. So it's just like mass chaos. People are running everywhere. The cannon noise is going off. And Avia was also like that, but to, she was smaller, so it was less damaging. Um, but that was a terrible. So that was like a legit PTSD, right? That noise, you would just see her. She just shut down. You couldn't even talk to her. She wasn't even there. She was in complete panic mode, like, for her life anytime she heard, like, a firework or a loud noise. Um, we have so many fun experiences I could share for examples. Um, and so... One of the things I think when we come to the panic disorder that I want us to understand is that when we do not give this the weight and the place of parenting this as we should, it really can begin to eat away at a child's self-esteem. Um, untreated anxiety disorders, they strain family relationships because if someone, you can probably all think about this as an adult, right? Like if someone's not seeing your struggle for what it is, like it's hard, right? You're like, no, I don't. I don't need you to fix this, but can you see me? Can you see what my experience is to be able to like live and breathe this? And so it impacts school performance, it impacts social functioning, and it can lead to more serious mental and physical health problems for the child down the road. Um, and so anxiety disorders are caused by all sorts of different combinations, whether it's the life events that we've talked about, there is some genetic um, disposition towards it, temperament, personality, and different biochemical factors that can come from other, other illnesses, other medications, or whatever we're experiencing. Um, and so we can identify the problem. Like um, they say, on, like one of the people said, it's like allergies. Like when you come into my doctor's office, I can be like, you're obviously having an allergic reaction, right? Now I have to understand what is causing that allergic reaction. And that can be more of like an in-depth process. And so anxiety can be very similar. Like sometimes it's easy to understand what we're seeing happen, but getting to that root, getting to that genesis is sometimes a lot more um, tricky. So just as like the biggest bird's eye view perspective on treatment ever, we talked already about how we get this diagnosed, but um, some of the greatest, most beautiful processes that work with this are like cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy, seeing a counselor, seeing someone who can walk through your child with connecting their thoughts to their actions and figuring out how to like intervene in them. There are a whole bunch of different natural remedies that are a beautiful answer for anxiety, or at least to help. Um, there's different breathing techniques because a lot of anxiety is our body sending up that warning signal, right? And so when we can teach our body to, to calm down and to breathe through it and to be able to rest and to be able to teach our bodies like, no, I see what you're talking about. We're going to deal with that, but we don't need to go to that place. Um, there's a lot of um, opportunity for us to be able to take our bodies back from where the anxiety wants to take us and to be able to intervene in that process. There's also something called um, EFT tapping. Has anyone ever heard of that? So EFT stands for something I'm trying to think of right now. It's not emotionally focused therapy. That's a kind of counseling for couples. EFT stands for something I'm going to remember. 
Um, and so what it is, it, and it can get super strange, um, but it also is proven to, be, proven to be pretty scientifically effective. And so it's just acknowledging like all your different like acupuncture, acupressure points in your body. And so it leads them through like a series of basically just tapping on them um, to help. Because a lot of what you're experiencing anxiety is like your whole body is like lifting, right? Like anyone ever felt anxious before, right? You're like your whole like, and so a lot of anxiety, what we're trying to do is get the body to be like, no, and to like relax and to like, we call it grounding them, right? Like to be able to like, be like, no, stop. Let's think, let's engage our mind in what's happening. Not our bodies taking off for flight to like run away, fight or flight, right? We're flying away. And so EFT tapping is like another, there's like, you can YouTube it. There's, um, people probably go to school for it for years, but there's some really good YouTube videos. Um, to be able to, that really are very beneficial in helping people to calm down and to be able to have this as like a, um, something you can self-administer like in those moments. But there's all sorts of breathing apps that people love. I have a couple of adolescent clients who just love different breathing apps because it'll like, I'm going to have an iWatch one does like the whoosh, like breathe in and out kind of thing. So there's different apps that will lead you through that to just, if your mind is like racing, to just be the thinking for you to like get you to calm down until you can get to a better place. Um, but there's so many different, everything that we're going to talk about, mood and ADHD, if we get to it, there are so many different great tactics for so many of these different things that we could spend all night going through them. Um, and I would love to sit down and have a conversation or if that's something that people are interested in putting together, like, well, what are some of them? We can work on it. At the end of the um, slideshow, I give you my Pinterest link. I have a Pinterest link to something called Counseling Tools, and my board is just full of all sorts of... I wish I had more time to like make it by category, so sorry, don't. Um, um, but it's like a big conglomerate chunk of great articles, great research articles, great helpful tips on all sorts of the different things that we talk about and more. So we're going to switch to mood disorders. So anyone know any of the mood disorders? Come on, everyone knows one. Depression, thank you. Um, and so you can go ahead and go to the next one. Um, in kids, this is this is the same. So I think anxiety is way easier to see in kids. I think mood disorders is way more difficult to see in kids because it can be more Eeyore-ish, right? It can be, it, it is not, anxiety tends, what that cap go? Anxiety tends to be like a, thank you. I'm going to lose my microphone if I have time. Um, like the fight or flight. So like if someone's flying, right? Like they're like, Mwah! you can see that in a person more when you're walking, where the depression tends to be more like a, and that is just sometimes a lot harder of a social experience to be able to identify on a quick basis. Anxiety is all whatever, and the depression is more like completely the opposite. And so um, genetics, we know for mood disorders, is a huge player. Um, and so if one of your parents has been diagnosed with, um, well, this is mostly like applying to bipolar, which we're going to get into, but your chance of also inheriting this, especially bipolar or cyclothymia, which we're going to talk about in a minute, is 25 to 30%. If both of your parents have are diagnosed with any kind of bipolar, your chance of having it is 75%. So with all of the mood and affective disorders, we see that this genetic component is huge. I would honestly say... Yes, a genetic component is a thing. It is a thing. But I do think a lot of it is like the nature-nurture 
when you're watching a parent even be anxious, right, all the time, that's just how you learn to respond and deal with the world, which as parents, it's even more reason to be able to deal with a lot of our junk so that we don't have to pass this down to, like, our children to be dealing with. Um, so we'll just go for major depression. Um, one of the things that is important to look at is that this is something that goes on for two weeks. It's the same in kids we look at. Um, this is just like an overall feeling of down the dumps, crying, sadness. Um, like the spirit, you see the spirit, like it maybe lifts a little bit, but just like it sinks back again. Like the smiles, they're not there. The laughter is maybe like a, it, it doesn't like make its full fruition of the laughter. Um, a lot of somatic complaints, somatic complaints, this is huge, the stomach aches, the headaches, they're all back, right, with anxiety, and they're here, the depression, because I really believe that the depression, like, settles into a child's little body, and all of their little limbs, and all of their little muscles, and it's the same kind of thing, and it can just be like an ache, um, and so, a major depressive disorder, it, it, the two-week marker is like the huge thing, right? Like this has been going on for longer than that. We see that my child, I just can't, I can't get them to like, can't, you know? So sleep can be disrupted. A lot of it is the same with anxiety when you look at it on the piece of paper, but it's just totally different in the way that it is actually like functioning. It's just the sadness. It's just a cloud, a heaviness, a weight is like pulling them down. I always tell people like, let's be real scientific. Like what does the word depression mean? It's a, it's a, it's a functional science word, right? Like they are depressing you. It is something that is holding against you and it is pushing you down. And that's exactly what it feels like to be depressed is that you have something that is against you, that no matter how you try to arise, how you try to overcome, it is something that is depressing you down and keeping you there. Um, so dysthymia, that is just, um, so in all of the counseling books, this is how we would draw. Oh yeah, this is my example I forgot to use. Okay, so in uh, depression, we draw it like this. Here's our normal. So you're like down here, and you're just like down here for a long time, okay? So dysthymia, the reason this is helpful is that dysthymia is like, so if this is normal, that's our normal. Dysthymia is more like this. And so we're looking at that over a period of a year. We're not necessarily down as deep, and we're not necessarily staying down as long. It should actually be like this. Um, but it just keeps coming. It just keeps dysthymia. So it's like the, the cyclical part of it, the like up and down kind of part of it. And so in kids, this is not easy to spot, but it's easier to spot. This is much harder because you're like, okay, we're better now. Okay, we got past that. We're made, oh, we're here again, right? And so just looking at what that looks like, um, I think we have to be pretty perceptive in what we're looking for just to be able to be looking at our children over the long haul of like, you know what, they, they get out of it and they get to that normal, but... They go back. So um, that's a big one. And I, again, those somatic complaints. And so anytime we're taking them to the doctor, they're like, well, you know, let's do an x-ray. And then there's nothing there. And whatever they do, that's a huge indicator of what that looks like. Um, so bipolar, so I'm not going to spend as much time on those ones because I feel like in some ways we all have a vision for what that looks like. The bipolar is the one I want to spend the most time on. And the mood disorder is because I feel like this is not something we have a vision of what this looks like in children. And so I do think it's one of the like, more underdiagnosed things. A lot of times there's like a huge discussion in the world right now of bipolar versus ADHD because they have a lot of similarities in the way that they look because in children typically 
okay, so in adults, right, we all know that bipolar has, like, the two different states, right? So we draw bipolar like this, where we're going up and down, up and down, up and down, and we're having these manic, and we're having these depressive, like, episodes, right? So in children, though, what's important to know is that it actually doesn't generally do that. It generally just goes, let's see, how would you draw this? Thinking, like, this. So it's just, hello, please come to the party and work. It's more the hyperactive all the time, but then it's calming down. Um, and so they don't have that bipolar part as much, but it's the hyperactivity all the time. And so this happens in 2.6% of children. Um, a lot of it is they're not subject to being able to focus. Their motivation is um, like squat. Um, they are, if any motivation, it's all from external incentives. Um, and even those when they're not like, when those don't speak their love language, when they don't speak like their thing, they're like, no, no. So motivation for this bipolar is a huge part because they're just always active all the time. The hyperactivity just continues to go on. And so they do sometimes have like, and, and in the manic, they're like, woo, right? And then the probably instead of going into the depressive part, they would just be more blunted, like, right? So blunted affect is like you get to that stage and it's just kind of, hello, are you there? Like, hi. You know, like, it's just, like, not a lot of response, not a lot of, like, things going on. Um, people who are in survival mode, you see a lot of blunted affect. A lot of dip, That's, like, one thing we look for all the time is, like, are their eyes, they have that light in them, right? Or is it kind of, like, Michael calls it dead eyes. Like, you're, like, looking at them, they're looking at you, but we're really, there's, like, something's wrong inside of there. Um, that's not clinical. Um, and so they have kind of, like, an erratic sensory experience. They tend to rage a lot. Rage is one of the greatest indicators of this bipolar in children um, because it's just like that, hy that hypermania that they're, ex they're experiencing, that irritability, when you can imagine that those are just like combined to that whole entire time. It has no other experience but to just rage because that, it, it's so much energy. It's so much energy inside of you that like that's the only experience of it to be able to be able to let go. There's a huge lack of safety. You've probably heard like people who are bipolar who are adults, they do a lot of unwise things when they're in their manic episodes because they just don't have like a concept of their, like, what do you call it? Like, yeah, their mortality. I was going to say destructibility. It was kind of creative. Um, their mortality. Um, and so it's the same kids, right? So they're like the risk takers, the extreme sport people, like all those kind of things because that input is like an output for them to be able to use instead of the rage category to use it towards like these extreme risk taking adventures and behaviors. And so you, you'd usually describe them as someone who's like, go, go, go. Like they're go, 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 go. And they have lots of energy and they're just, and then sometimes they come down, but they don't like crash. And so with so many of these things, I think all of us have people in our lives when you look at them, maybe not for any of the things I've talked about already, but you can see in these kids, you're like, wow, that's just really intense, right? Or like, that's really, you know, like that discernometer is going off inside of you where you're like, I don't even know what to say about that actually. All I can say is like something, 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 something. And I think in our own children. So I think bipolar, I would say if there's a way that I come back to that diagnosis, it's my intuition. It's a lot of like, okay, there is something here. I am connecting. I'm being pulled towards this. What do I need to pay attention to that the Lord is like trying to show up in this moment to be able to see what's happening, to be able to look at this child and what they're experiencing. Um, and then so cyclothymia or cyclothymic, it's the cyclothymia, um, is this version of bipolar where it's not as extreme, 
but it's prolonged and it just continues, but it's just continuing to go. So it's like a condensed version of that. Um, then the last one on there is disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, which is a big one that affects children. And so this is a distinct period of elevated or expansive or irritable mood. It has to be longer than a week. So imagine just everything we've kind of talked about, like is like rah, like up inside of someone and it's just like staying. It has no calm down point. It's just here. Okay. And so, and it's becoming disruptive, right? Because it's at irritability. It's coming out in an aggressive. It's severe. It's a recurrent temper tantrums that are like, I don't even know why we're, I don't even know why this is a thing right now. Like that, that trigger was here and your reaction is here. And instead of like realizing that you're just still staying here the whole time. Um, and so one of the things that people say with this a lot is like, there's just no, there's no, there's no intervention. There's no thing that you, it's not logical. You can't like explain it to get them to come down is just so challenging. And so it's that, it's these aggressive outbursts that are re, in response to very common stressors that don't make any sense. It can be an outward aggression or it can be an inward aggression. So this can be the person who starts to like have the shame and cutting and like hurting themselves and whatever, like they're taking it out on themselves. I had a client, one of my first clients, um, the Lord showed up in a lot to like help me love well what she would just feel such shame. She would cut, oh, just... Um, so yeah, she was a cutter, but that was just the, that had, that had very little to do with like her diagnosis, right? Because that was just like the way she showed the aggression. Um, so anytime she felt that shame, every knife and scissor and shop object in her house was locked up because she had hurt herself so badly so many times with like cutting arteries and things that she, twice when I was working her, she just took off sprinting to like the grocery store, went to like the school supply aisle and just started like demolishing her body in the middle of the grocery store. Um, and so she would completely fit into this because it was just like an absolute eruptive, like, um, you know, dis it's not regulated. That's for sure. In terms of the way the mood is just taking over her and just, um, and that was like her inward expression of the aggression. Um, so verbal physical rages, um, again, I already said this, but the trigger is completely out of proportion for the reaction. It's inconsistent. They're not, you know, 18 months or two years old. Um, it happens more than, let's see, three times a week and in two more settings. So that is a, like, a, that's a thing you, that's a DSM-5 thing, right? So all these things happen, like they have the certain parameters. And so this one, I just thought that was a helpful one. So like the settings, that's a huge one. Because we all know, like, your, your teachers are like, your child is an angel. And then you like come home and you're like, where's the angel? I don't know. Are you see an angel? I don't see an angel. Um, and so, you know, and so that's, and, and so that's great, right? Because that's not in two or more settings. It's in one setting, right? And so then we have to figure out the parenting part of that or whatever. But a big part of this is like, no, this just, this comes with them everywhere they go. It is not setting based. It is inside of their brains and inside of their hearts. And so they're just persistently negative. Um, little cognitive flexibility, little self-regulation. And so again, early detection and intervention in that is super important. So we're just going to hit a little bit on the last one and then we will be done. Um, oh, Alex is texting me that it's going well. Did you meant to send that to me? Um, okay, and then <laughs> I was like <laughs> laughing. Okay, um, I, I should read this text from Alex. I wonder what it says. Okay, um, 
going to ADHD. So this is one I feel like everyone is a lot more familiar with. So I wanted to save it for the last one. This is the last one we're going to talk about this week. Next month, we are going to go into, I have it on the end slide. Um, we'll see what it is when we get there. Um, I know it's autism spectrum disorder, learning disabilities, and I think behavior ones. So obviously, hopefully you guys know that ADHD is now classified into two different subcategories, which is hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive. And so this used to be what we called ADD, ADHD. So this is all under one category into two different branches. Um, one of the biggest things that I want you guys to be thinking about for just your own children and also the children that you run into, since this is our, the other ones technically are diagnosed more. I think this is one that in community that we experience a lot and we have to be very skilled at caring for people with. Um, so this is like 13, I forget, it's somewhere on my notes somewhere, but it's like, I think it's 13.6% of children are diagnosed with ADHD. So that's a lot, right? That's a lot of people that we're caring for. And so we can talk all day long about why and what and what's happening and what this is going on. Oh, 13.2% of boys and 5.6% of girls, 11% of elementary school children altogether. Um, but at the end of the day, the most important thing for us to understand is that this is an opportunity for us to um, be very skilled at the way that we love people and to be able to grow in a way that we can... Um, yeah, care for them, as is everything that we've talked about so far. The other thing I would love for us to be thinking about is, like, how do we, as our own children, right, help them make decisions as to what we want them to grow in so they can function in the world, like, neurotypically, right? And what are the things that we need to be able to protect them from because they just can't, right? So, like, all these things have, like, this give and take. Our hope for our children is that in the end of the day, they will be able to function in the world neurotypically, right? And sometimes it's a process. So sometimes it's guarding them from this or guarding them from that. So, like, for my kids, for loud noises, for, like, a like a year and a half, I was like, okay, you know what? We're just going to go over here. If I know there's going to be a loud noise, I would not avoid what we were doing. I would not let them listen to something else. But I was trying to make it, like, way less, Right? The exposure therapy, like coming back into it, coming back into it, coming back into it. And now they're totally fine. They'll talk about it every single solitary day. Remember the time? They were yes, I do remember the time. Oh, thank you. It's traumatizing for me also. Um, but like, but they can be by fireworks. They can be by everything. Like that's totally not a thing anymore. Um, but anyways, getting ADHD, it's figuring out like how we want to love people well and grow in that and not be ignorant and to care for people. So Hyperactive impulsive type, this is what we kind of usually think about when we think about this. Hallmark symptoms are short attention span, distractibility, disorganization, procrastination, poor internal supervision. Often fidgeting with their hands and feet, constantly moving, cannot sit still, often leaves their seat when they're expected to remain seated. So like if you're like eating dinner and you're like have that one kid, you're like, can you just stay at the table? No? Okay. It's like, I gotta go get this. Like, you know, it's just like, it's the dinner table, I would say, is actually one of the first places that you see ADHD show up. They, they love being there. It's not that they don't like you. It's not that they don't want to be there. They just cannot sit still and eat a meal from the beginning to the end. Um, does not listen to or follow verbal directions. And this is not defiance. We're not talking about defiance in any way, shape, or form. It's just like, I'm sorry, did you hear what I said? No? And you give them like three-step process. They maybe got the half step of the first one, and then it's done. Um, unable to play quietly. Everything is going to be loud. Talks excessively, blurts out answers, has a lack of patience, interrupts or intrudes on others, starts but, starts but does not complete homework, pushes through chores carelessly, will not independently perform chores, does not remain on task. A huge part of this, huge, 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 is um, 
Whenever they go to do something, you're like, oh, well, did you bring your pencil? No. Like, it's just, uh, they never have the supplies they need to do a task, right? It's always like, and if they have some, they always forget one. Like, they cannot, like, the whole of everything just never shows up to the game. So, um, sports equipment, school supplies, uh, books, toothbrushes, like, everything is just always like, oh, where is my hairbrush? Like, I do not know. Like, that's what, it, like, you know, it's just constantly, that's a big indicator. I always tell people that's that part is, like, huge. We all lose things. Um, but this is a huge indicator of that. Um, so the inattentive type is hallmarked by a short attention span. That's the same. Distractibility, that's the same. Disorganization, that's the same. Procrastination and poor internal supervision, they're all the same. But here's the difference. Um, they are more like in a, in a la-la land and um, have a very hard time following through on something. But they're not like running around, leaving their seat, leaving the table, having to play with that, fidgeting. You will see like... <laughs> It was always interesting when we worked in student ministries, I'd be like, you're all, like, you, your parents have never diagnosed you. Like, you, I had one student in particular that probably many of you know, and, like, he always had something in his pocket. He was always fidgeting with something. It was always a paperclip. It was always whatever. He never had his hands not doing something all the time. And when he was, like, 22, I was like, you do know that you have ADHD, right? And he was like, I've always wondered that my whole life. I think I do. I was like, yes, do you see your hands right now? You do. Um, and so just always having to, like, play with something, spinning the pens, spinning the pencils, tapping the pencils, like, everything is always a party going on in our appendages. Remember I said anxiety is, like, in your core, and ADHD is, like, all out here all the time. Um, so they don't have a time, hard time listening to what other people are saying and sometimes even processing it or computing it. They need questions and directions repeated, and then you're like, I thought we just talked about this. Okay, let's say it again, right? And you just see it's like, what? And they're just not able, they're not comprehending, they're not processing, um, not able to listen or follow verbal directions. They forget to do things. Oh, I was going to do that, and I forgot. Well, where's your homework? I forgot. And you can see it's not like a defiance. It's not like a, oh, I'm just trying to trick you, right? It's a thing. By the way, lying is a huge part of ADHD because that's a coping mechanism that they learn very early on to cover up the forgetting so that they can, like, get out of the situation. So lying is a big part of ADHD. Daydreams at school and home, gets bored quickly, makes careless mistakes in homework and tests, is disorganized with their possessions, um, starts but does not complete, rushes through, um, and does not remain on task. And so one of the things I think that's important that I just wanted to like kind of stress, which is not something that maybe you guys have heard, we'll talk about this in autism also, is that this looks very different in boys and girls. So sometimes it can look the same, but I do think that girls go grossly under like misunderstood in this category because they tend to fall into this inattentive type which is like, oh, they're just daydreaming, or whatever it may be, because it looks very different. And so on that Pinterest board, there's quite a few articles that I posted about how this looks like in girls. Um, and I have two that are about autism in girls that I have somewhere in my life I'm going to try to put on there because they were, like, mind-blowingly good. Um, and so just to read it off, though, so symptoms in girls um, often can be, like, just daydreaming quietly because they're a lot quiet. So a lot of these things are just quiet, under the radar, like spacing out kind of things. Um, looking out the window while twirling their hair. Hair twirling is a big part of it. Um, picking at cuticles. So it's like any kind of like thing that you just like go into, you're like, and you're like, you're gone. We're gone now for a while. On a little trip, a little vacation in our brain. Um, picking at cuticles. Um, feeling anxious and sad, but not e not meeting any other criteria for anything we've talked about. Just kind of like 
this in tune with emotions it's kind of overwhelming talking incessantly or hyperactively and then we went to this and we went to this oh I have a question hey and then we went to this or whatever it may be appearing to be silly or a show-off or boy crazy okay so literally boy crazy is a huge sign of ADHD because it's like that energy that we're like putting into things right you're like wow 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 and then you figure out that's like a subject that you can like kind of be popular in, right? So you're like, whoa, let's go with that one. Rah, it may be. And so it's very interesting. By the way, I read a fascinating article. I think I put it on the Pinterest board about the popularity of Minecraft with ADHD boys and why. And so they did this whole scientific report. Basically, it comes down to the fact that it is a world where they can have complete lack of impulse control that's like safe-ish, right? And no one is putting boundaries on their creativity and their um, energy. So you'd be like, I'm going to start building this building. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go whatever. I don't know my crane enough to keep going. But like, you know, like, so they can just jump from place to place things in this like world. And so it like literally releases their um, inhibition to have to like focus. But yet they can be productive. Like an AD, like ADHD people aren't unproductive. They're just like, start a task, leave it. Start a task, leave it. Someone's pointing to themselves in the back. Start a task, leave it. And, um, and, and you know, that's what happens. And so... Minecraft is like the ultimate world or like having like a man shed could be like the ultimate world in like real life right um and so like start to ask keep going um and so um appearing to be silly show off or boy crazy seeming to fade here's the opposite seeming to fade into the background acting shy and inattentive but usually it's like the appearance of both and you're like who we're gonna get today what's gonna happen but not like in a bipolar kind of way but in a way you're like wow okay having trouble maintaining friendships this is the number one thing for ADHD and autism like I thought that person was your best friend yesterday. Nope. Nope. Why? They don't really, it's, it's like, it's not really a reason. We're just like, boom, onto the next thing. I have a great article. It's like an ADHD adult's brain in 76 seconds. And it was like, why didn't I sleep last night? Oh, there's a lump in my bed. Oh, the cat is outside. Oh, the window. Like it just goes, like every second is a different thought that has nothing to do with each other. Right. And so you're like trying to like rein in all those like running thoughts. And the last thing for girls is putting in extra effort to hyper-focus in order to compensate for your inattentiveness. And so they often end up feeling anxious and self-critical as a result because they're just trying so hard to be like, okay, I know, I know. Like, so there's several women at the church who have ADHD, and I see this in them all the time. So like, I know I can try to be out of control. I can be like funny. And then I'm like, oh no, okay, focus, right? And then you see them focusing and it's like, Oh, you see their brain like smoking a little bit because it's just saying it's hurting to stay focused. Um, and so messy, and that's a big part of the ADHD is the messiness. Um, clumsiness and poor balance, I didn't say that before. That's a big part of it too because that like attunement to your body and what's going on isn't really even there because your mind is somewhere else. So you're having a hard time like even being like, oh, my feet are touching the ground. Oh, there's a table, right? Like it's just hard to manage all those things at one time. Michael did tell me the other day that he was talking and touching the ground at the same time, so he therefore couldn't answer my question, so maybe we could diagnose him. Um, okay. So, and just to throw this in, rejection, sensitive dysphoria is RSD. That's like a huge new thing in the DSM-5 that we're looking at, is I just want everyone to have this on the radar. It falls under ADHD and girls specifically, and it's an intense emotional response caused by the perception. Everyone's going to be like, I know people with this, that you've disappointed other people in your life and that because of that disappointment, they have withdrawn their love, approval, and respect from you. And that same painful reaction can occur when you fail or fall short 
of the high goals that you set for yourself. And so you basically like pull back from people, but it also begins to plague like your mind and your emotional experiences from people. Um, so even when actual rejection hasn't taken place. So like you maybe I hurt Scott's feelings and then the next time I try to go play with Danelle, I'm like unable to really like begin to form an a friendship with her not because I have like an attachment thing or anything like that but just because this rejection the sense of like daunting rejection and like fear of what that's going to be like is like it just overwhelms me in being able to make relationships and so I think that's a I think we can all see that right and a lot of people like they have bad experiences and they have a hard time connecting after that but that's a big part of what um we look like in that so that is just the kind of the top three I was like if we can get through those we'll be good um, next time we are going to be talking about autism spectrum disorder, which is probably my most, um, I don't know what to call it. Like the thing I would love for all of us to be very wise, keen per perceivers of, um, and behavioral disorders and learning disorders. And so I'm just kind of giving a like, we'll spend most of our time on autism. Um, and we'll kind of just talk about the other quickly. And so that's going to be Monday, December 3rd, which is the next the first Monday of December. Um, and then also, just as a promo, um, we are going to, we ha the first Monday in December was going to be all about resourcing parents with great things for Christmas gifts. Like, hey, what are some really good devotionals for like different age categories? What are some really great like audiobooks, things we should be listening to, um, stuff like that. So what we're going to do is move all of that information to like a series of short videos that we're going to post. Lisa Lewis is going to help me with them because in case you don't know, Lisa Lewis is like the queen of all things resources. Um, she's like my favorite human for that. Like, what do I need for that? Hey, my son is lying. Here's three podcasts from Adventures in Odyssey, two devotionals, one book and whatever. Like, and it's like, great. I feel like I went to the library. Um, and so she's going to be helping me with that. And Actually, she's just mostly going to be doing it. And so just to be able to think about um, as we gift our children with things for Christmas, how we can be encouraging different things in them as we assess our children, as we look at their hearts, as we talked earlier or maybe last year, who knows about shepherding their hearts, like how are the gifts that we even give them, things that can play into like encouraging the growth we want to see inside of them. Um, so we're going to start releasing those videos right after Thanksgiving probably and for the first couple days of December. And so then we'll move, made this space available to continue this conversation conversation. So if you have any questions, we have to pick up our kids in a couple minutes. You can ask them now. You can turn in the questions. Um, any feedback, any things you'd like to see talked about, any anything, go for it. Yes, and then can you go to that? Oh, nope, that one, no one, no one's back there. That's the Pinterest board. If you want to write that down so you can go see it. Yes, ma'am. So I'm struggling with Mia a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, yes. So the biggest thing, like, I, I think it's so helpful is just start recording those instances. Okay, so she was on the bus, and she pushed her aside, and then she came back. She didn't tell the 
well, not that she didn't tell the truth. She omitted that part of the truth. And then she, whatever. And if you talked to her about it, like, oh, well, they said you shoved it. Did she own up to it or whatever? Like, just start, like, start chronicling all of that until you have, like, a couple pages. So I, I always, I tell the story of, like, when, after, when I was postpartum with Elias, and I was just, like, living life and feeling like, oh, my gosh, what is wrong with me? And I sat down, and I wrote everything on a piece of paper. I, like, literally wrote out the DSM-5, like, depression, like, things, like, in order. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. Because I just felt them like on that day and then on that morning and they all just kind of floated around. And so I think kind of streamlining everything and that'd be a great thing to be able what's that's just Mia. What does that mean? What does that look like? And then chronicling that. And then maybe we can have a conversation with that after you kind of chronicle that. Yeah. Yeah. Feel free to go. Your chills. Please eat more popcorn and take a bottle of water. They're really heavy. We don't like to move them. So any other questions that you have, you can email me. You can submit onto the Facebook page, and then we can continue that discussion.